Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is The Way We Live Now. Today is day 50, since I learned that afternoon naps are a good thing, and day 12 of this podcast. This one's pretty personal, guys. My guest today is a remarkable woman who has been on the front lines of the pandemic in New York City from the very first moment. She's also someone who has meant a great deal to me and my family. I'm honored to be joined today by nurse Eileen McStay. Eileen, thank you so much for joining me on The Way We Live Now. I'm so happy to be here for you, Danny. Tell me where you are right now. Like, just describe your surroundings and where you're sitting and what you're looking at. So right now I'm off from work, which is a great thing for now because I need to reboot. I'm sitting on my bed where I recently bought new blankets for myself because I needed new, fresh started, pretty white (laughs) blankets. And I'm sitting looking out my window. Um, It's totally quiet in my apartment, um, which is a nice change of pace from work. And I wanted to make my bedroom a little bit peaceful. It really hadn't been. It was busy. And so I got new peaceful bedding. I put some plants in my windows all within the last month, all since this COVID thing is going on. And I'm kind of working every day with it. And I was like, I just need a place Mm. where I can sit, you know, is comfortable. I feel not pretty. And I don't mean pretty in like the material way, but I feel peaceful and pretty. And I spent more money on my blanket than I normally would. And I'm so happy that I did. And you know, my windows are bright. I cleaned my windows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, yeah. So I kind of went to like a baseline of at least one room being free of um, busyness and chaos. I don't even read in my bed anymore. Like I try to go to my bed and sit here and, you know, I pray in my bed. I think about things, but try not to do anything in my bed. I'm so glad you're doing that. That just sounds like something that you really need. Oh, man, I realized that that I wasn't doing enough of self-care at all. And, you know, I wasn't going to be able to kind of continue at the pace um, emotionally and physically that's been required for the last six weeks. You and I met 
because you were my husband Michael's nurse at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City for the better part of his 11 days, but who's counting? Right. What a privilege it was to take care of him and to meet you. Yeah. Well, we felt the same. And he was recovering from radical surgery for cancer. Pretty much everyone on that ward was recovering from very serious surgery for cancer. And I remember, I'll never forget, when we got the good news of his excellent prognosis, you and I both hugged each other in the hallway Mm -hmm. outside of his room and cried. You know, it was good news. It was a great thing. And he was struggling still. And so that was a ray of sunshine in his recovery. Yeah, exactly. Um, But, you know, I've been thinking about you so much in recent weeks because that's not happening, Danny. Yeah. Right? We, I mean, you and Michael got to experience really my physicalness firsthand where I would sit on Michael's bed. I remember Michael receiving blood and really having like, you know, an emotional reaction to it and being able to sit and hold his hand and really be, you know, far more than a nurse giving him medicine, you know, be supportive. You were on your way. And that's how I am as a human and how I nurse, right? I am there when the person needs me most, you know, in these times where our physical contact with each other is done, there would be no such, there are no family members. And I have experienced, I mean, you went through how sick Michael was. Michael was really sick and his sickness doesn't shake a stick at some of what I've witnessed in the last six weeks. And imagine if Michael could not look forward to you coming or to your son coming, Mm. see him. Mm. You know, one of my for me, like if I could put myself even in that same experience with Michael, where he was, you know, really struggling, had, you know, a lot of issues related to receiving that unit of blood, you know, guilt, a lot of things. Um, and I was able to sit with him and I remember, you know, praying with him and, and him saying like, he doesn't really pray. And, <laughs> and um, I had a similar experience in some ways, a woman who, so a lot of these patients are on oxygen support. A lot of the COVID patients are just struggling to breathe. And they're alone. And every time I would go into this patient, she would grab my hand in fear because she was not able to breathe. And she would hold you. She couldn't talk because of the device that was on her mouth, giving her breath. And, you know, but you could know by her eyes what her, the level of her fear was palpable. Mm -hmm. And I had to, after a period of time, we're actually told not even we're not supposed to be, of course, I'm gowned and gloved and masked and shielded and protecting myself as much as possible for other patients, for my family, for other people on the floor. But I had to release her grasp, her fearful, probably more fear than she had ever had from my hand because I had another patient who was crashing at the same time. So it was more needy, let's say, than that poor woman. And that it goes against everything that I am as a person and as a nurse to walk away from this woman who couldn't breathe, really, because somebody else couldn't breathe worse. <laughs> and I, I said to myself, like, this is a mess. This situation is a mess. The hospital's doing what they can, and I certainly cannot ridicule. I think it's wasteful energy, the whole politics of this and everything. But I've very much been able to not, not allow my work life to permeate my personal life, especially since I've been a nurse when I was a social worker that happened. This COVID situation Mm -hmm. has made that completely and utterly impossible. I've been living alone for six weeks because I don't want, I have two kids that are asthmatics. My parents have heart conditions. I can't see them. My boyfriend is 
you know, 58, not quite high risk, but you know, why he lives in Connecticut, doesn't live down here. Why would I ask him to come to the epicenter of what's going on? So it has completely and utterly permeated my personal life as well. And that's hard because I feel like you don't get away. So, you know, we do a lot of support for each other at work as much as possible. You know, I have great support at home. Did my room two and a half weeks ago because I was like, I need to do something and create a space that I can leave COVID. I can leave COVID. So I, my room never sees my uniform, my shoes. I'm showering. Like my room is not contaminated. I'm not at risk that there's anything related to COVID in my room. Right. That's so, that's so interesting so that you can, it's like you have your safe space. Yeah, I needed it. Yeah. I didn't have it for the first couple of weeks. We're now COVID six weeks today. Mm-hmm. So I've been taking care of only COVID positive patients for six weeks. So that ward, uh, which I remember so Where well. Michael was. Yeah, it's yeah. like seared into my memory. You know, of course it is. Those walks that Michael took, everything. So that ward is entirely COVID and is the entire hospital entirely COVID at this point? So we're now transitioning back. So they kept um, cardiothoracic surgery was kept non-COVID and transplant was kept non-COVID. Every other unit was transitioned to COVID. We currently transitioned two units back to non-COVID. We are still fully COVID. So no visitors. If somebody's dying, they get one visitor for 10 minutes for end of life. Goodbye securities at the door. You know, no, these people don't see faces, smiles, nothing because we're covered from head to toe. These people have no one. And so you have that entire floor. So all of the eighth floor, right? Not just the east is fully COVID. They're trying to keep it floor by floor so that when they do open, you know, they'll open it that way also so that there's no wandering patient from a non-COVID unit into a COVID unit and things like that. I'm just thinking about this uh, photograph that I saw I think online of healthcare professionals in full garb, I think it was nurses, putting photographs of themselves, smiling, pinning them to their clothing so that the patients yeah. could actually see, this is what I would look like if I could smile at you. A couple of people on our floor have started to do that. And so we, somebody, one of our BAs, um, Helen, said she would start doing that. Um, because that's the hardest part, because we've also, some people have been there for a long time. We've also made little stickers for our patients, which are not necessarily endorsed by Mount Sinai, but just these people who are overcoming a hospital stay related to this, you know, because only 10% are getting hospitalized, but the ones who are really sick, you know, we, we made little stickers for them that, you know, they kicked COVID's ass, like really to empower people to go, you know, because they're really not well enough. They're not recovered completely when they leave but um but a lot of it is emotional for these people so you know when they leave they put a mask on we're still covered they have seen no smiles only thing that they see is your eyes and thank god your eyes can tell a lot but i don't actually know i mean they're doing a lot of studies about ptsd and mental health and healthcare workers which i think is incredibly important but also for the patients anyone who's been really sick these covid positive patients there's stigma now related to them because everyone thinks they're contagious. It's like a leprosy, you know, mm. from, you know, there's a lot of biblical implications for this whole thing. And I mean, for me, that's how I relate everything. But um, mm-hmm. and in the recovery, there's going to be a lot of biblical implications as well. Around what percentage of patients are you seeing in these six weeks improve? So in the beginning, the first three weeks of 35 patients in three weeks, we discharged eight people only. 
But now there definitely is a better understanding. We started using the convalescent plasma with antibodies. You know, we did the immune modulating drugs, all the things that were speculated to be as Mount Sinai used um, with some really good success. So amazingly, in the six weeks, there's been so much learned about the illness, things like proning, having patients lie in their bellies has been the number one thing that's Mm. improved people's recovery. So in the last, so the first three weeks, very little movement, Danny. This last three weeks, most especially in the last two weeks, because we're putting people on their bellies, because we're not giving IV fluids as a few absolutes that we know improve recovery, um, resting. Like I'm, if you remember when Michael started to move around, we pushed him and pushed him and pushed him. We are not pushing these patients. These patients need to rest, stay in their bed not breathe heavy, not cough. So all of these things that we've learned that are not at all things that made sense to us before have helped. So in the past three weeks on 8 East where I work, we've discharged 19 people. Mm. And in a way, not with oxygen. Initially, we were discharging people with oxygen. We are not considering the people fully recovered, but certainly they're well enough to recover at home. You know, they're staying on a seven to 14 day quarantine at home, regardless of how long they've been in the hospital. I mean, we've intubated um, that many people, 18 or 19 people, which on our surgical floor, we don't see. We've had many, many, many deaths on our floor as well, Mm -hmm. Um, which again, you know, everybody's saying only people are dying on respirators. It's not true. Um, People are dying because they can't breathe anymore. I'm not sure I agree with all our politicians that things are improving and improving, but um, there, we've def- there's definitely been so much more knowledge gained and so much more, you know, we're experts now, right, at six weeks mm-hmm. at what, what we need to do with this. And I think the interventions and the way we're treating it is what's improving. I'm not sure that the, the whole nationwide situation is improving. We just know more. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we've seen, you know, simple things working more than these dramatic things. I mean, the antibody thing does seem to be working. Mm-hmm. Well, that that gives me some hope that in six weeks, there's been such this incredible yeah. ste- steep learning curve. Yeah, and it's been really promising. Yeah. So you, you said before that, that you and, and your colleagues have um, been supporting each other, you know, through this. What does that look like? I'm emotional, and so I wear my heart on my sleeve anyway. And so I've certainly had many tearful moments at work. But we've seen people like um, another co-worker of mine that, you know, doesn't cry, is not emotional, um, and has cried at work because he too is living apart from his family. And we're just really, no one goes into a room. We have like a buddy system. So somebody is getting gowned up. You know, somebody checks them. You have your shield on. Is your back covered? Do you have everything you need? You go into the room if you need something, you know, because we you know, have the doors have to be closed and all of that. You know, there, we knock on the door, we, you know, so that there's not this, oh, man, I have to take everything off to go get what I need. The buddy system has worked incredibly. You know, I'm a peer to peer counselor there. So and they've enhanced some of those services, too, at work where, you know, people are kind of allowed to walk off the floor if they need to because it's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's obviously tremendous amounts of food also. People are bringing so much food. So a lot of us are eating a lot of comfort food. We're all going to need cardiologists and gyms big time when this is done. <laughs> um, but, you know, we've seen people shut down. You know, many of my colleagues, that we currently have um, four nurses out with positive COVID. 
and three PCAs and our housekeeper was hospitalized, all positive. Mm. So that when it becomes personal, it's hard. I, I lost a friend, a very close friend. His wife is an emergency room nurse and he died of it. It has hit us personally and and at work because our lives are now all the same, personal and work and professional is all blended. Yeah, yeah. We've definitely seen people talk more about their fear of their mom. You know, I'm worried about my pregnant wife. Um, People who didn't really talk about their private lives are talking about it, which helps people, you know, feel supported that we're all kind of in this together. And we're all anticipating, we're all planning a big party when it's sober, whether it's going to be Labor Day or Christmas, nobody knows. You know, it's the uncertainty of it, Danny, that's caused most of the anxieties and fears is that we don't know when this is going to end. Mm-hmm. And that's hard. And what was hard at the very beginning is no one knew how to treat it. So there's definitely, like I said, some promise in the knowledge that the doctors have gained, the infectious disease doctors who have studied and made recommendations and, you know, are being respected enough that people are listening. So it definitely feels a little bit better in the last, more so even in the last week where we've seen um, less people dying on our floor. And like I said, I can only speak for my floor personally, but staff are definitely getting tired. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, many of us are working extra shifts because so many people are sick emotionally and physically, but it's mostly emotional. You know, there's definitely tears every day on the floor from somebody. And that's not, that wouldn't be our norm at all. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking about that because I know you to be such a feeling person this way. I think that in this time of COVID, we are all in this together. And there is no corner of the globe that's not affected by it. I guess I have two more questions for you. And one is, what's giving you strength now, aside from your beautiful new blanket and sheets and <laughs> your, your, you created a room of your own, which I love and I take as such an incredibly positive sign. But what, what's giving you strength? A couple of things. One, I mean, devoutly religious. So I have prayed more than I've ever prayed and I pray all the time. I pray with patience. And so I am getting a lot of strength, even though I've had my very angry moments with my religion, with God about all of this. So I get a lot of strength, though. I do get a lot of strength from a very peaceful. I walk a lot and I pray. Mm -hmm. I get a lot of strength from my coworkers and from the people in my life that I've heard from. I mean, this was going on four days and Michael texts me, are you okay? Mm -hmm. People checking in and people willing to make emotional, physical, financial sacrifices so that I'm okay at work, my colleagues coming in, even though their wives are pregnant, so that we can check each other. I have gotten so much strength, and I'm only now really able to talk about the sacrifices people are making without crying, a positive cry, a good joyful cry, because when you look at what somebody's willing to, when I look personally at what a coworker or my boss is willing to do for me so that I can be safe at work, so that I can be safe, so that I can ultimately get my kids back and go see my mother. That obviously empowers me to want to do that tenfold for my coworkers. Mm. Of course, I get strength from, you know, it's kind of cliche-ish and everybody assumes this is why nurses become nurses. And it's true. Of course, I get strength from watching people recover and watching people go home and all of that. But it's much more personal when it's about somebody that I care for every day, my coworkers and 
Yeah, we're making, we have a parade essentially every time somebody leaves the floor. We ring bells, we clap, we cry um, because it is. I want to roll out a red carpet for people who leave. So I would say that I guess those three things is mm-hmm. what helps me get strength, right? My prayer, you know, my private life, my prayer is, you know, um, you know, my self-reflection, knowing that I need to reboot and make sure that I'm okay to go to work so that I can be strong for me, but also for my coworkers um, who need me also. And, you know, I need them. I need them to do their jobs well. I need them to wear their protective equipment so that they don't contaminate me. And that's really what it's about. We all have to protect ourselves so that everyone in our circles is protected. And then, of course, I draw strength on the fact that people are getting better. I have to have that balance because there are, like I said, I'm there's part of my nursing that isn't what I know I'm capable of. Mm-hmm. You know, I never would release my, uh, I never have done it in my life before, release the grip of somebody who is scared and wants nothing more than to not be left alone. And that image will be in my brain. I don't know what will erase it. Like, I don't know what will take it away. Probably mm-hmm. lots of therapy, but you mm-hmm. know, it's vivid. And I feel her hand, her grip on my so I had to come out and, you know, say to my coworkers, this sucks. Like I need this to end because I can't, this can't be the way we nurse anymore. Yeah. And I don't think it will be. We'll, we will return. Yes. To, um, we will be. And that's, of course, hope. Exactly. I, I have so much hope. I have a hope sign in my window that I now have figured out how to position it, that when I go to bed at night, there's a light that shines the word hope on my wall as I fall asleep. It's amazing. I had to turn it backwards and I found this light and it shines on my wall. The word hope. That was literally the last question that I was going to ask you is what gives you hope? And you just answered it in um, a completely beautiful way. That image is going to stay with me and I think stay with all of us. Well, I hope so because there is hope and there always is hope. And, you know, there are positives, obviously there's negatives that are going to come out of this, but, you know, as a world, as a, you know, when you say every corner of the world is, and you're very much into positivity, but we really have to draw on, on our strengths and draw on the things that are going to get us to the other side of this. Yeah. And I am a hundred percent hopeful that we are going to get to the other side of this, what the world's going to look like over there. I'm not so sure, but it's definitely going to be um, a better, more beautiful um, safer world. Mm. I'm hope, I, I'm certain of that. Mm. Not just, I mean, and my hope gives me that certainty. Eileen, thank you so much. Stay safe. Thank you. I'm doing my best. Stay strong. Keep hope shining on your wall. I look forward to getting to visit you guys and, Same and not here. talking about COVID. Same and, yeah, here. All, and, yeah, and, having, and having another hug. Yes, a okay. hug. Oh my God, I'm so far behind with my hugs. I'm yeah. in debt with everybody. All right. Be well. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Eileen. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to The Way We Live Now. Tell us the way you're living now. We want to hear. Call us on, you might want to get a pen for this, 909-713-8995. That's 909-713-8995. And record your story, and we might just use it on the pod. Also, you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash the way we live now pod. We are creating a community here and we would love for you to join us. You can find me on Instagram at Danny Ryder. The Way We Live Now is a production of iHeartRadio. It's produced by Lowell Berlanti.
Beth Ann Macaluso is executive producer. Special thanks to Tristan McNeil and Tyler Klang. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.